This is a Seven West Media podcast. I have always believed in miracles. I'm standing with the three biggest miracles in my life here tonight. And tonight we've been delivered another one. So we're good to go? Good to go, as long as my phone doesn't ring. Let me just turn on to silent. (laughs) Mark Riley is Channel 7's Walkley Award-winning political editor. If it's happened in or around Canberra, he's across it. A couple of weeks after this surprise election result, how has the dust settled in Canberra? What's it like over there at the moment? Look, the dust has settled with some heads are still spinning with the, at the result. And it's not just people in the press gallery, there are people I'm in sure. government who didn't expect it to happen and um, people in Labor who definitely didn't expect the result that we got. But in terms of going, getting on with the business of government, things have slowed down incredibly. You know, the, the, the government's policy agenda. What is its third-term agenda? I don't know it. Uh, I don't think voters know it. Um, and, you know, we need to see that, and we need to see it pretty quickly. Governments need to give people some vision. Um, you know, it's an overused term, but it's absolutely important. You need to paint in the horizon of the future for the people so they know where you're taking them. And then you need to, piece by piece, uh, construct the path to that horizon, you know, how you're going to get there. That is incumbent on every government. This government hasn't done it yet. Let's give it a break, it's only three weeks, but it needs to you know, get on with the, with the job of, of uh, building that narrative and letting people know where it's going to take them and how it's going to get there. The main sort of policy they really ran with during the election campaign was, of course, the tax cuts. Mm. But what is happening there? That's not really an immediate sort of thing, is it? Well, look, it it will be, I think, in lieu of any other legislation coming to the parliament. But, look, I would say, and it's not too fine a point, that the major policy in the election campaign was don't trust Labor, don't vote for Labor. And and that that Labor was really clear from our debate there in the West in the third week, the beginning of the third week when things really started to rev up and that was a turning point of the campaign that night that it was all about Labor policy. The entire political debate was about what Labor intended to do and the government's reasons for people to vote against that because uh, they believed it wasn't the best thing in their interests or in the interest of the economy of the nation. So, you know, it was really a negative, an intensely negative and intensely personally negative campaign in the end. And now the government's really only the only policy of any substance for the third term was its tax cut policy. Labor agrees with the first and second tranches of that. Yeah. So the real problem comes in what's called the third tranche of that, which will inevitably benefit people on higher incomes to a large degree, about $11,000 tax cut for people earning $200,000 or more. So that's where the political problem will be. The government's now saying that it will wants to pass all these three 
tranches of tax cuts together. Mm. Labor's saying it'll support two-thirds of it, but not that third tranche. And the government wants to paint Labor as being against tax cuts. But that is really the only substantial piece of legislation that the government's got to run into the parliament. And the first tranche of those tax cuts are supposed to begin on July 1, but the parliament's not coming back until after that, so they'll have to be backdated. Before the election, I did hear a lot of people say this is the climate change election, but hearing all this, was it really the economy election? It it was, and Labor obviously didn't prosecute the case effectively enough. Um, Strangely you know, wonderfully in a kind of political strategic sense, the government was able to prosecute a cost of living campaign against Labor. Now, who would have thought that having been in power for for six years, they prosecuted effectively and in the end successfully a cost of living campaign against the opposition. It was remarkable. It, it really is when you put it in those terms. And now sitting back, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, seeing how it all played out, How unusual was the whole campaign and election? Um, Unusual in the sense that uh, it was really a one-man show on the government side. It was all about ScoMo. You know, he he knew and he took this strategic decision, we now know, in late 2018 uh, to... Um, to try and capitalise on his own popularity because it was his most persuasive positive uh, for, for him and for the government. The real question is, is what country do you want to live in for the next 10 years? The next 10 years is going to determine people's lives. Starting out, coming out of university, the the entire trend line in polling and polling's a different story, but the entire entire trend line and and in their focus group um, analysis and the you know, general anecdotal information coming back to the parties was that the government's standing generally wasn't good. The Liberal brand was under pressure, but people liked Scott Morrison because they saw him as authentic and enthusiastic. He come out of the Treasury, so he had economic credentials, and that is paramount in a, an election campaign and. Um, they believed him he had some level of authenticity. See, the decisions you make in one term of government last for a decade or more. So he decided to run a one-man show, everything himself, and basically hiding the rest of his front bench and uh, attacking Labor um, from all fronts and, and, and did it effectively, did it successfully in a very, very narrow path that ran through um, most of uh, Queensland, up, particularly northern Queensland, across the top of Tasmania, Western Australia, to uh, suppress Labor's vote and also to hold ground in Victoria. That was the real um, big success of that election night, that they held back an expected strong vote against the coalition in, in Victoria and that allowed them to retain government. That we have a responsibility not to be exporting death-dealing coal to the rest of the world when we should be exporting renewable energy so those villages can get the and talking about Queensland, obviously one of the big issues there is the Adani mine. What do you expect will happen there going forward? 
Well, I expect the, the approvals now will be, um, if not uh, expedited, certainly put in place uh, as long as they pass muster through the legislative and regulatory processes. Uh, the threat to Adani during the campaign, real or perceived, was that a shortened Labor government would review the approvals that had already been given to the project. Now, that won't happen because there isn't a Labor government and the, and the Coalition government obviously isn't going to do that. We've already seen a change in attitude from the Queensland Labor government. The, all these approvals now um, can be done within a reasonable time frame to see whether the Adani mine passes uh, the approval process, then it's up to the market to decide whether there's enough investment dollars in in the international community to support such a venture. And that's still a question that nobody's been able to answer because they've peeled it back, don't forget, from a uh, the first proposal was for uh, tens of billions of dollars and now it's something like $2 billion. The Bank of India is is in there maybe as a, as a backer, but the big institutions just are shying away all the Australian major banks have said they don't want to have anything to, to, to do with it because investment dollars are moving into renewables with great uh, speed and, and alacrity and, and this is kind of uh, counterintuitive to the path of international investment. How big do you expect climate change to be when it comes to the government's agenda? Are there any hints or just wait and see? We still don't have an energy policy and this is the great failing of successive parliaments since 2007 that every energy policy, call it what you like, a climate change policy, an energy policy, a pastiche of, of, of both. Um, and the industry has been telling us for now, what what is that, six, um, uh, 12 years, that all they need is a bipartisan agreement on a policy, any policy. It doesn't matter what that is. They just want certainty and they can operate then with um, a regulatory framework that is predictable. And they haven't had that for 12 years. And if they do that, then the predictions are that that would cut $150 from average electricity bills um, uh, every every year just by having a policy, any policy. We don't have one, so <laughs> we don't really have anything on the on the slate at the moment, and we're waiting to see I'm sure it. Sure, everyone is. Everyone who wants all that money off their electricity bills, if nothing else. Sure. <laughs> Moving on to immigration, it wasn't huge in the election, but it's come to the forefront in the past couple of days with some figures coming out showing that bridging visas have really blown out. Mm. Um, you know, the new Labor spokesperson for uh, immigration and Christina Keneally has mm. said she's going to put a blowtorch to the government over it, which is very strong wording. Mm. What is going on there? Wow, the, you know, such a large question, and, and the answer's um, complex and stretches back now uh, 19 years to the Tampa. But at what's going on contemporarily now is that you have a very aggressive political player, Christina Keneally, up against a very aggressive political player, Peter Dutton, in, in Home Affairs. And this is going to be one of the main contests in politics for the next parliament. Um, Labor has always had a conflicted position on border protection because it's a party of left and right um, factional persuasions and there's a an internal battle there on its obligations to secure uh, the borders of, of Australia to protect our sovereignty and integrity but also to express um, you know, the humanity of a social policy heart towards people who, who seek to come to Australia through immigration and uh, and transfers uh, through the UNHCR. The point of conflict, though, at the, in, in the short term will be the Medivac bill. 
people of Australia will remember this day and know that this is now on your head, Leader of the Opposition. I believe that we can keep our borders secure, we can uphold national security, but still treat people humanely. That Medivac bill allows the remaining people on Nauru and, and uh, Manus Island to apply to come to Australia for medical and psychological reasons for treatment if um, their transfer is approved by two uh, doctors and the government will seek to repeal that bill. But let me just make it very clear, it is our policy to reverse that legislation. So let's uh, work that through when the parliament resumes. And the, real, the big problem, to answer your question briefly, is that there are no third countries uh, acceptable to the Australian government who are offering to resettle the remaining 990-odd people who are on those islands. We've got an agreement with the US, they've taken a bit over 500, and we've got an offer from New Zealand for 150, but um, no agreement on that yet. And so the people, you know, there are... Three or four thousand people who've been on Manus and Nauru now in Australia on bridging visas waiting to be uh, resettled in an unknown third destination. And of course, the problem with the New Zealand offer, um, according to the government, is obviously our visa situation. It's, it's open. And so I suppose if you live in New Zealand, you can come to Australia. But is there the possibility of another visa if any of those asylum seekers were sent to New Zealand? Well, that's what the government has been, you know, I, I sense a change in, in heart here and I think if it's going to happen, it's likely to happen um, in the short term. The governments are, are likely to take unpopular decisions early in the term so people will forget about them by the time the next election comes around. I think this is one where they're preparing the ground for a change. So the government's position, as you say, is that if you send people to New Zealand from Nauru and, and Manus, take up that offer of reselling 150, it is a, in their words, backdoor way of coming to Australia because the of the bilateral agreement between Australia and New Zealand on freedom of movement. So if you're a New Zealand resident or citizen, you can come to Australia um, no questions asked, no visa required. But that also assumes that these the people who are resettled from Manus and Nauru become New Zealand citizens and, and residents to have that, those rights. So they have to go through a process uh, examine, uh, examination of their credentials for citizenship and, um, and for residency, and that would presumably include background checks and all the rest of it. But the government's political point is that you, people of bad character who are on Nauru and, and Manus can come to Australia through the back door of New Zealand. Now, as I say, there is a softening in that language. I noticed it from Scott Morrison before the election campaign, um, We'll, we'll wait to see what Peter Dutton says about that in coming in coming weeks and months. For in Labor's mind, they're, they're running a Me Too policy on border protection, that there's not a, um, a sliver of paper between themselves and the government on border protection. They they are both committed to the same the same policy, so they didn't want it. It was a lose-lose situation. Neither of them went there as a result. Police have raided the offices of the ABC in Sydney over a series of reports aired two years ago, alleging unlawful killings and misconduct by special forces troops in Afghanistan. There's a raid happening right here at the ABC right now, just uh, 100 metres or so that way, uh, and that a uh, report is named uh, in the warrant at Dan Oaks. We respect the independence of the fourth estate. 
But at the same time, this is an ongoing investigation. It would be inappropriate. This is the second warrant executed on journalists in 24 hours. In Canberra yesterday, police raided the home of News Corp political journalist Annika Smethurst over a story. An important part of you know any democracy is knowing what the government is doing, and obviously that's what journalists do sometimes through leaks. When when a source gives them a leak from a government department, this happened in 2017 with the ABC um, reporting on the Afghan files, mm. um, and recently uh, last year with a News Corp journalist reporting about um, some possible surveillance on on Australians, and now both of those organisations are being raided by the government to try and find out who their source was, what's happening here. Yeah, this is a, a deeply, deeply troubling time, not just for journalism, but for the public's right to know. And I know some people think at times it's you know a bit highfalutin of journalists to, to, to cry foul about access to information. But in the end, you know, and, and I deeply believe this, our responsibility here is as the eyes and ears of the, of the, of the people who, who can't be here uh, to hold the government to account themselves um, but we have we do that on their behalf that's that is the role of the fourth estate so okay you can criticize us for, for methods and means and uh, um, from time to time and a lot of that criticism is valid and hopefully it changes people's approach to the way that we practice our our profession but the essential role of journalism is is to exercise the uh, the, the public's right to know to hold truth to power, and in this this instance, this is deeply deeply troubling. We're three three weeks after an election, and we have t- not one but two federal police raids on journalists and and their homes and their workplaces, looking for the sources of of leaks of information that was utterly in the public interest. So in the case of Annika Smithhurst, the News Corp journalist um, uh, documents, emails uh, that she reported on that showed there was a uh, discussion at the highest level in the Departments of Home Affairs and Defence to give powers to the Australian Signals Directorate. This is our highest um, level of cyber security uh, apparatus. It's in the, in the Defence Department. It used to be the Defence Signals Directorate, now the Australian Signals Directorate. So they are spies and they intercept communications internationally, but they don't have the power to intercept um, and, and monitor communications of Australians. That has been a historical difference in their legislative um, powers. So this was to change that, a very profound change that would have allowed the agencies to have without Seeking first seeking um, a warrant from uh, a magistrate, they could uh, monitor the communications of Australians who came into their purview as being suspicious um, for for one reason or another. Now, the, the reasons that they were put for that were, are, are quite persuasive that people could be involved in um, in terrorism or people smuggling or you know child sex trafficking or uh, organised criminal activities of the most nefarious. Um, description, but they could be communicating with absolutely innocent people too, who who don't have any connection to those fields and uh, whose information would have been accessed without warrant um, by by these intelligence organisations. So that is, you know, obviously and utterly in the public interest for that to be um, revealed. So that's what Annika did. Now that was April last year. We're talking about. 
um, 14 months ago and suddenly three weeks after an election the AFP raid her home, spend seven hours in her apartment going through absolutely everything as a friend Claire Harvey, another senior journalist at News Corp said, flicking through every page of every book she's got there, you know, going through her underwear drawer, you know, the most undignified search, search of uh, the source of her information and now we've had a raid by the AFP in, in the ABC over those Afghan files similarly looking for the source of a unapproved um, disclosure of of uh, secret information. My problem with this is, first, primarily, these these matters are in the public interest. There's, there's no doubt about that. There is legislation that says that if you divulge this information, it is a crime. So this national security information. Now, I question whether the, a lot of those laws are there to protect national security or protect governments, but, uh, protect governments against this information getting out and the people knowing exactly what they are discussing at what levels and, and what sort of reforms what sort of changes, what sort of powers these instrumentalities are looking for. But the other thing that, that really sticks in my core is that there are occasions, and there have been many of them, where it's obvious that high-ranking officials within departments, possibly ministers themselves or ministers' offices, have released secret information to journalists for, for political reasons. They've appeared on the front pages of our newspapers, and no... Nobody's had their doors kicked in over that. Considering the timing, three weeks after the election, do you think that we need to be worried about transparency with this government? Absolutely. You know, they're raiding, raiding news organisations to find the sources of information that is inconvenient to the government. That's all. It's, that, that, that's the only reason these, these raids are going on. Of course, the government has been embarrassed by the disclosure of this information. And it is, as, as News Corp said in its statement, an intimidation. It's intimidating journalists, but, it's all, but, but more importantly, it's intimidating sources, people who are well-meaning, who think information should be released for the benefit of the public, who are now being told, if you do this, we're going and we're going to bang you up and throw you in jail. And like you said, it all comes down to the public's right to know and your job, which is keeping the bastards honest. Yeah, well, that was the Democrats, wasn't it? Don Chip's great saying, but um, um, we've appropriated that in the, in, the, in the media and some people might see us as the bastards at times. <laughs> The positive thing that comes out of, of um, events like this is that it, it just emboldens the fourth estate to be even more aggressive mm. and more determined yep. to do what we do. Absolutely. That was Channel 7's political editor, Mark Riley, busiest guy in Canberra. That is your news fix for this week. Every week, we'll dig a little deeper and go behind the headlines. News Fix is produced by Seven West Media. Supervising producer is John Buck. Our executive producer is Nikki Hamilton. And the director of news and public affairs is Craig McPherson. I'm Cyan Doherty. Thanks for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.